Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We will not be discussing cake on this podcast. If you want to hear about Masterpiece Cake Shop, please have a listen to our special episode, which we recorded 24 hours after the ruling came down. Oh, and share it with your friends. Make sure that they know that the Supreme Court did not give every homophobe across the country a license to discriminate. We call this episode LGBTI's Still on SCOTUS. That's because the Supreme Court has received two new petitions asking it to address whether Title VII bars discrimination based on sexual orientation, a request from a man who may have been sentenced to death because he was gay, the possible sequel to Masterpiece Cake Shop and Arlene's Flowers, and a request from a transgender asylee whose attempt to get a legal name change is being blocked by Indiana law. We will begin by chatting about all of these cases with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Then we will chat with Art about two new rulings involving access to restrooms for transgender students, including one in the Gavin Grimm case. And finally, Art will let me go on about an area of interest for me, namely a ruling from California on a discriminatory exercise of a peremptory strike to eliminate gay jurors. And of course, Art will be surprising me with his choice for our Of Note segment. Let's dig in. So, Art, we have a lot to talk about under Section 1 of this episode. So much SCOTUS. Why don't we start by updating people on the Arlene's Flowers case? Are we going to get the ruling that we didn't get from Cake Shop from this one about flowers? Well, it is distinctly possible that we will if there is no complication in terms of overt hostility to religion during the commission process in the state of Washington. And uh, as far as we know, there wasn't. It's, it's interesting that within days of the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, which we discussed on our prior podcast, uh, there were supplementary briefs filed with the Supreme Court uh, by the petitioners and by the respondents. Mm-hmm. And uh, the petitioners said, oh, you, what you should do is vacate the decision and remand it so that the court can look for evidence of hostility to religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also, they were upset because in this case, uh, there was something about the, uh, the, uh, the state initiating the proceeding before the guys even filed their uh, complaint. Mm. Okay. So they said, well, that means the state was hostile to religion. Oh, Lord. And okay. I think that means the state was hostile to discrimination, yeah. which they're allowed to be. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Arlene's uh, flowers was immediately listed for a conference consideration after the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was issued. But the first conference uh, came and went, and there was no announcement. So they're still mulling that. And as we're recording this, we're recording this on a conference day, uh, Mm -hmm. June 14th. So they might make a decision today, but we won't know for a few days. Uh, But Arlene's doesn't really, as far as we know, present the particular complication that the court seized upon in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case to avoid deciding the underlying issues of uh, whether a, uh, a baker in that case, had a First Amendment right not to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. In Arlene's, the question is whether a florist has a right to refuse to make floral decorations. And this really raises, especially on the free speech issue, uh, what constitutes expressive conduct 
in the conduct of a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, certainly, baking a cake, if you write something on the frosting, right. there's... You don't have that with flowers. Conduct. You don't have that with flowers, but okay. oh, you, could, you could have, you know... Shush uh, them a particular way. You can have a, a, a banner or something that oh, goes right. with the flowers. Yeah, you write a little it's, note. It's a, yeah, you could have that. Uh, but, you know, is uh, certainly there is artistry uh, in, in um, making a wedding dress. Flowers, you know, a if a lesbian couple comes in, they want wedding dresses. You know, uh, can they claim no? It's an expressive activity. We have a first amendment right not to make you a wedding. Arranging the hors d'oeuvres in a particular way. <laughs> right. I mean, and where do you draw the line? And Justice, I think it was Justice Breyer during the oral argument made the point. He says, I don't know where you draw the line on this expressive idea in the commercial context. Right. So uh, these issues are alive, and if they don't issue a petition or uh, issue a uh, a writ of certiorari in Arlene's Flowers. Uh, there are other cases. There's a case from Arizona involving the uh, custom printing business that doesn't want to make wedding invitations for mm. same-sex couples. Uh, the Oregon Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in another wedding cake case. Oh, wow. And so we may even have a decision to discuss for the next issue of, uh, of Law Notes. So for those who were thinking that, you know, Kennedy was punting, it's not going to take too much long before the court, either a Kennedy with Kennedy on it or not, is going to be looking at some of these right. the same issue again. But that isn't even the most interesting and immediately important cert petition that we have. Because Great. So let's keep moving down got, the cert petition right. list. So We've we got, have two cert petitions on file Great. on the question whether Title VII bans sexual orientation discrimination. And depending how that case is treated by the court, it could also cover the gender identity issue under Title VII as well. Okay. Uh, so, and we have progress in the, in the courts of appeals on both those fronts. We have second and seventh circuit decisions now, and it's the second circuit decision that's being uh, attempted to be appealed by... And we've talked about that together. Right, huge right, the Zarda win. case, mm-hmm. huge win on bank, mm-hmm. a clear majority decision by the chief judge of the circuit. Uh, but uh, Altitude Express, at the very last minute, as their time was about to expire for filing a cert petition, it was filed. And the cert petition, it's, it's interesting. It doesn't say that we believe that we should be allowed to discriminate based on sexual orientation because their position was they didn't. Their position throughout the case was that they had good reasons to, file, to fire Don Zarda having nothing to do with his sexual orientation. Okay. And they actually won a jury trial on that question under the state law. Okay. Uh, but uh, they said really channeling the dissents in the Second and Seventh Circuits, they said this is a legislative decision for Congress to make, hmm. that the question whether Title VII bans sexual orientation discrimination is a public policy question that Congress was not considering in 1964. No one was thinking about it in 1964. It's inappropriate for the courts through some kind of fancy interpretation theory to read in sexual orientation. Uh, in, in some other countries, they do reading in. In fact, in Canada... Okay. Uh, with their Charter of Rights, yeah. uh, the Canadian Supreme Court read in sexual orientation to their equal protection uh, provision because in Canada, it isn't just a general guarantee of equal protection. It lists the categories. Oh. But they said, we're going to treat the list as other things that are similar to can also be read in. And so we think sexual orientation is similar to sex discrimination, so we'll read it in. But here we go talking about right. Canada, and we've they, got to get through these cert petitions. Right, and we're, <laughs> and we're at war with Canada, so we shouldn't do anything about that. Okay. All right, so tell so us about this, that. So there's, there's another Title VII right. petition, Bostick against Clayton County Board of Commissioners, 
uh, out of Georgia. And, uh, Brand Mr. new, right? Mr. Yes, Mr. Bostic. In fact, the, uh, the 11th Circuit's decision in the case was just a few weeks ago. Wow. Uh, which is why we hadn't even previously reported. Uh, so Mr. Bostic claims he was fired from his position in a county job because he was gay. Mm-hmm. He brought a Title VII claim. There was nothing he could do under state law because Georgia doesn't prohibit sexual orientation discrimination. So he files a Title VII, and he's citing cases like Hively, you know, and uh, he gets nowhere with the 11th Circuit panel because the 11th Circuit panel says, until there's an on-bank on this issue, we can do nothing for you because there's this old decision from back before the split when we were part of the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. That's how far back they're relying right. on this. Yeah. There's this old circuit decision. It's binding on three judge panels. And uh, he actually tried to bypass the, the uh, panel here. Okay. After the district court zinged his case, he filed a petition with the Eleventh Circuit to go directly on bank because hmm. he said it would be a waste of time to go to a three-judge panel because they'll just say, you know, they're bound. But the circuit refused to go on bank, just as they had refused to go on bank in Evans versus Georgia Regional Hospital, which was Lambda's case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this case, very short uh, decision, not going to the merits, noting the fact that you know uh, that Zarda and Evans had been decided, but yeah. saying you know it's, we're bound. Yep. Uh, so uh, he's got a petition on file. It's not by one of the major gay litigation groups. It's just his mm-hmm. local attorney. Okay. Uh, so. The Supreme Court turned down Evans just months ago, uh, which suggests that they weren't interested. Mm -hmm. But maybe now they're interested after Zarda. All right, so then there are two others. One of them is actually being conferenced today, June 14th, Rhines against South Dakota. I love this case, Art. Um, I've actually, I looked at it a little bit as we, when I was back at Lambda Legal at their Fair Courts Project, and I think that it's super interesting. Um, So yeah, give us a little bit, particularly after Pena Rodriguez was decided. All right, so, so Pena Rodriguez opens the door to inquiring about whether there was openly racial discussion in the jury in a capital case. Right. Uh, and uh, This tra- was a Supreme Court right, case. Right, so a U.S. Supreme Court case. Traditionally, the Supreme Court has taken the position that we will not allow uh, inquiry into what was said in the jury. You know, it's supposed to be confidential. It's, uh, but what if some of the jurors come out of there shaking their heads and saying, boy, you know, uh, the racist comments and stuff like that. Uh, doesn't that violate the constitutional rights, the due process rights, the equal protection rights of the defendant? Uh, so uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, we'll make an exception to that rule. And that woke up Mr. Rines, who has been busy with his habeas corpus petitions and everything, trying somehow to get reconsideration. He was convicted of capital murder in 1993. The facts are pretty horrendous. Yeah, I mean, but- he was he was in the midst of a burglary, and an innocent person stumbled in, and he stabbed the person to death. And it wasn't just a quick stab to the heart; it was like gruesome. Right. So you know, people might say, regardless of his sexual orientation, if you believe in capital punishment, this might be a case for it. However, but the point is, deserves a fair everyone and deserves a fair and impartial hearing. And uh, he was hearing uh, during the trial. I mean, the the jury's doing their deliberations, and they send out a note with a list of questions. Mm -hmm. And anyone who reads that list of questions, knowing that the jury knew he was gay and that a point had been made about it by the prosecutor, uh, so they knew he was gay. And the questions were, you know, they were concerned if, if if he gets life instead of death he'll be in general population and he'll be having sex with other men. He'll be seducing prisoners and blah, blah, blah. 
you know, it's they didn't say that, but the questions implied that that was what they were in mind. They said, will he be in general population? Will he have access to other prisoners? And, and the judge and, didn't answer and, that, but what did the judge well, do? Well, the judge's position was that during the voir dire, all the jurors said they could be fair and, you know, they weren't biased on sexual orientation, stuff like that, and that was enough. And the judge send, they, the judge gets these questions and he says to the jury, I can't answer these questions. He says, this is up to you. All right, so the guy gets uh, a recommendation for the death penalty, which the court accepted. He's been on death row for like 25 years. Mm -hmm. And when this Supreme Court decision came out, all of a sudden, you know, he was able to get affidavits from some of the jurors. They were able to find some of the jurors. Actually, these affidavits, some of them are old. But the jurors said there was discussion in the jury room. We better give him the death penalty, some people argued, and get rid of him. Because if we give him life, he's going to be in prison. And, and someone said, you know, just where a gay man wants to be in an all-male prison. You know, there's all these stereotypes being thrown around. So uh, he tries for habeas corpus. His habeas corpus is going nowhere. He tried directly with the South Dakota Supreme Court to get them to reopen after the Pena ruling, and they refused. They said, uh, you know, it was enough that during voir dire, these people were voir dire on bias. Uh, and so uh, now he's asking the Supreme Court hmm. for an opportunity. I mean, it's pretty shocking. I've written a lot about how to effectively do voir dire to make sure that you're rooting out bias and homophobia, transphobia um, from jurors. And what's alarming is there are a lot of lower courts that have decided that, you know, provided that after you say, yes, I think homosexuality is a sin, if the court says, well, can you set that aside and be fair and impartial, they'll say, yeah, yeah, no, I could decide this case fairly. Um, And they'll let the juror serve. But but at any rate, the Rhines case uh, is knocking on the door. That's it's a long shot. But uh, the issue really is: Will the Supreme Court treat homophobia the same as racism mm-hmm. within this purpose of reopening uh, jury decisions? And the most Rhines may get out of it is life instead of death, but mm-hmm. not life on death row. Right. You know, he's been living on death row for twenty five years, which is uh, you know virtual solitary confinement. And the the dissenters in the Pena Rodriguez case, one of the reasons that you have the no impeachment rule in in not setting aside verdicts is that now you're going to open up the floodgates to everybody who's going to be com- claiming a bias well, issue or right. But he's who gonna, whoever wants to do this is going to have to come up with pretty pretty strong evidence, and mm-hmm. he's got affidavits. Right. I think at least three affidavits from members of the jury talking about the discussion about homosexuality that took place in the jury room that makes it very clear that in the decision between life in prison and death, that was a factor. Great. And if that was a factor, mm-hmm. then uh, the death penalty should probably be set aside. I mean, that doesn't mean release him. Yeah. I mean, that means make it life without parole. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see All what right. happens there. Okay, let's right, move one on. More. One more. One more. And, and We've covered, what, four so far? Yeah, so this is the fifth. This okay. is the fifth, and it was just filed. Uh, so uh, it's possible that we won't have any decision on the cert petition until the fall. Uh, Doe versus Holcomb. The uh, the Doe here is a transgender Mexican brought here by his parents as a child. Has been able to, uh, to get a certain amount of uh, documentation and stuff, but the problem is, first of all, born in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And get a new birth certificate? I don't, I don't know. But how about a name change? Mm-hmm. How about a name change? All right. 
So the family settled in Indiana. Uh, this is like, you know, the, the old joke, the, the, the Jews wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then they decided to settle the only place that didn't have oil. Well, <laughs> this family decided to settle in the one state, the one state in the entire United States that has a statute that says only U.S. citizens can get a name change in an Indiana court. Wow. Uh, all right. So uh, the John Doe has won asylum. Mm-hmm which is a pretty big step, which means legally... Before Jeff Sessions, Yeah, before Jeff Sessions, Justice Department wants to crack down on this stuff. Right. So one asylum, so is legally in the country, has regularized his status with the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, has a green card, the whole thing, Mm -hmm. but is not a citizen. Uh, So uh, goes to the county clerk and says, I'd like to file a name change. And they say, are you a citizen? It's right on the form. You have to check a box. Are you a U.S. citizen? No. He said, well, you know, you can file it, but the judge is just going to dismiss it because there's no waiver. Uh, So uh, got an attorney and filed in federal court a constitutional claim. All right. The federal district judge says that none of the defendants you've named could do anything about this or has anything to do with the enforcement of this. It's all left to the courts. Yeah. You know, you can't sue the county clerk. You can't sue the governor. He, he sued Mike Pence. <laughs> you know, that you, you, like you can't sue the attorney general, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the trial judge uh, dismissed the case on grounds of standing. You don't have standing to sue any of these people. So it goes up to the Seventh Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit affirms, but on a different theory, by a two-to-one vote. Okay. They affirmed on a theory of 11th Amendment immunity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and they, they also said, the majority said, none of the people you have mentioned has direct responsibility for enforcing this statute. It's enforced by the courts. So what you should do is you should apply for a name change in state court and appeal it up to the state Supreme Court and then petition the Supreme Court for cert. Okay. You shouldn't be doing it in lower federal court. Well, the, the, I assume they didn't do that here. Well, well, there's a problem with this. Yeah. It's going to take a long time. Yeah. And meantime, here is a man who has the only identification he has, has a female name on it. You, you need ID that has a consistent name on it. Yep. And uh, you have to wait at least four years after you get asylum and you've regularized your status to first apply for citizenship. So we're talking about someone who's going to have to wait years and years and years for what should be a pro forma thing. I mean, a name change is really a pro forma thing. The cert petition is not about the constitutionality of the Indiana citizenship requirement. It's about the right to go to federal court to challenge an obviously unconstitutional statute by suing at least the chief law enforcement officer of the state, the attorney general. Wow. Yeah. At the very least, you should be able to do that. Huh. Yeah, so um, really interesting group of cases, and we nailed those. Like, we... we trucked through those cases pretty quick. Um, So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll update you on the Gavin Grimm case and more. We're back. So last month, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia denied the Gloucester County School Board's motion to dismiss Gavin Grimm's case and held that Title IX and the Constitution protect transgender students from being excluded from the common restrooms that match with their gender identity. In a separate case out of the Third Circuit, the court took the unusual step of announcing about an hour after the hearing of oral argument that it would unanimously affirm a ruling denying a motion for a preliminary 
disciplinary injunction by a group of parents and students seeking to stop a Pennsylvania school district from continuing to implement a policy allowing transgender students to use locker rooms and bathrooms that correspond with their gender identities. So again, we have two cases to get through here, Art. Tell us about these two cases. Well, on, on the Gavin Grimm case, I think everyone is, is pretty familiar with the facts. Right. Uh, the, the big difference now is Gavin Grimm has graduated. Gavin, Gavin Grimm is uh, living on the West Coast and planning to go to college. Uh-huh. Uh, so why is this case still around? And uh, that, in fact, has been the attitude of the school district. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the case came back uh, on remand after uh, the Supreme Court vacated the Fourth Circuit's decision because the Trump administration changed their policy position and therefore uh, the prior Fourth Circuit opinion, which said that the uh, uh, district court should have deferred to the Obama administration's interpretation of the statute. Right. Well, now it's the Trump administration which's interpreting the opposite. So the case went back to the district court and uh, the uh, school district said, this case is moot because by the time it got back to the district court, Grimm was graduating. Yeah. Uh, and it, it seems that it, it was certainly moot with respect to injunctive relief for him. That aspect of the case is basically moot, but the case itself is not moot because for a period of years, he was denied the right to use the appropriate restroom. Right. And maybe he's entitled to some damages right? You know, for what he was put through and the denial of his constitutional rights and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So... School district said, oh, the case is moved, the case is all over, forget about it, you know. And besides, the Fourth Circuit does not have a ruling on the merits on this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they should wait for some live case. Uh, and the district judge said, no. This is uh, Judge Arenda Wright Allen in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so in a decision on May 22nd, she said, no, uh, I'm not going to dismiss this case. He's entitled to seek a declaratory judgment. He's entitled to seek damages. Uh, and so the case continues. The other case... Uh, Third Circuit, Pennsylvania. Third Circuit, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is part of a campaign by Alliance Defending Freedom, who's out there defending the freedom of cisgender kids to avoid using restrooms with transgender kids in school which they see as a gross violation of the right of privacy, both under the common law and under the Constitution. Alliance Defending Freedom is one of the largest anti-LGBT legal groups, well, the largest, with thousands yeah. of attorneys, and they're behind a lot of these right. cases. Well, they're, they're into the affirmative cases now. Like, yeah. like uh, they will affirmatively run into court on behalf of some business that hasn't been asked to do anything for a same-sex wedding, and they'll say, declare that under the local ordinance, they don't have to. Well, and it's worth noting that Trump is appointing some of these attorneys to the federal courts now. Um, So they're also doing this with with the schools. Uh, So uh, uh, let's say a school board or a school administration adopts a trans-friendly policy uh, on their own or in response to the uh, notices that the Obama administration was sending out in, 20, uh, in 2016. Uh-huh. Uh, so they adopt this policy, and uh, ADF finds a bunch of parents who are hot and bothered about it and are willing to lend their names to a lawsuit. Uh, although, ironically, in this case, the lead uh, plaintiff in the, uh, this is the Boyerton School District in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. is going as a John Doe, I believe. Okay. So, you know, they, they don't even have the courage of their convictions. Right. You know, so uh, they bring this case. They're seeking a preliminary injunction pending uh, a merits ruling. 
And U.S. District Judge Edward G. Smith last year denied the preliminary injunction, and they filed an appeal to the Third Circuit. So on May 24th, the Third Circuit heard oral arguments. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, an hour later, the clerk's office issued a notice. It, there they are, issuing a notice right now. <laughs> I think that's our fire drill. But they've been testing our, our, our fire system here. <laughs> We're live, folks. Live podcast. Here, hold on one second. All right, so there wasn't a fire, right. everyone. We're okay, but we're back. Okay. So anyway, we're so at the third the, circuit. So, so the, the the clerk the uh, clerk for the circuit issues a notice that the court is going to affirm the denial of the preliminary injunction, uh-huh. but they'll take some time to write an opinion. Okay. So later that afternoon, they put out like a one paragraph thing saying we affirm based on the district court's uh, excellent decision, and we will issue a formal opinion later. Okay. Which okay. is really a fast slam against ADF. Nice. Uh, and, we like and, that. And this is in a circuit where we don't have circuit authority yet. So we're still waiting for a really decisive uh, case that might end up going to the Supreme Court on this issue. I mean, we, uh-huh. we've got some good cases. we got an excellent Seventh Circuit case, the Whitaker case. Okay. Uh, but uh, this is still an issue that's bubbling up around the country. And ADF is still out there beating the bushes for plaintiffs to attack school districts that are trying to do the right thing. All right. Well, send money. Write a check to your LGBT legal groups so that they can, the ACLU, Lambda, write us a check at Legal. Yeah. Well, um, and, and the, the legal groups, help. I mean, these are cases against school districts. Uh, so uh, it's the school district's attorney who's defending the policy. But usually uh, there are some transgender students who would want to be involved as uh, interveners, and so the gay groups well, and are there the LGBT groups them. are out there also affirmatively challenging right. these. So, um, you know, there's litigation on all fronts, but send the money to the good folks. All right, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll chat with Art about LGBT people's right to serve as jurors. Great, we're back. So we're going to talk some more about bias and homophobia in the courts, and for that, I'm going to turn the questioning over to Art. Okay, so uh, we've got two cases, actually, one of which you're going to be discussing mm-hmm. from the California Appeals Court, uh, California uh, Third District uh, Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. When I was, you know, I go through Westlaw and Lexis uh, on a pretty much daily basis looking for new cases. This one just popped out at me yeah. because of the facts. I mean, uh, a guy whose boyfriend was working as a gay escort set out in pursuit of a customer who stiffed his boyfriend on his fee, got into a high-speed car chase, took a shot at the customer's car, and then he's brought up on criminal charges. And during the jury selection, the prosecutor used peremptory challenges to strike the only two openly gay men in the jury pool. Uh, The defense challenged the strikes, but the trial judge permitted them. A conviction followed, but the ruling on the strikes became an issue on appeal by the defendant. Uh, which the court answered in different ways twice. Mm-hmm. So tell us what's going on here. And I believe you you had a role in this case as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it does read a little bit like a gay action movie. So <laughs> Ryan Murphy, if you're interested in making like a TV movie series out of this, this is a prime suspect. Um, but this is a case, uh, People v. Douglas. It's out of the California 3rd District Court of Appeals. Um, the facts on appeal are actually also very interesting. So, um, particularly if you are on appellate Twitter or you're a legal nerd, 
um, which we are in this room, uh, the prosecutor used peremptory strikes to eliminate two openly gay men on the jury panel. So, of course, the defense challenged these strikes. The prosecutor on challenge admitted that one of the reasons for the strike was that he felt that openly gay men might be biased against a victim because the victim was not out of the closet. Um, the prosecutor also, at the time, articulated some non-discriminatory reasons for each strike. And, and the victim, of course, was going to be the prosecutor's primary witness. That's right. In the case. So really important to the crux of the case. And before we get into, you know, the, the appeals court re-looking at this case, let's set a bit of a backdrop for folks on the discrimination based on sexual orientation. So there's a 1986 Supreme Court case of Batson v. Kentucky, which prohibits excluding potential jurors from service based solely on their race. This holding has been extended to sex through uh, JEB v. Alabama and then to ethnicity. The basic rule is groups that 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 are warrant classifications for heightened scrutiny um, generally trigger a Batson analysis. So the Supreme Court hasn't yet addressed whether Batson extends to sexual orientation. However, in a landmark ruling out of the Ninth Circuit, right on the heels of U.S. v. Windsor, the Ninth Circuit ruled that it does. This was a really interesting case that I was also a little bit involved with called um, Smith-Climb Beecham Corp. v. Abbott Labs, where the Ninth Circuit explained that um, you know, a really good, strong, fair courts ruling that lesbians and gay men have been systematically excluded from our most important institutions. I'm going to read some of the language here. It's beautiful language that we've used in a number of cases where it's involving bias and discrimination in uh, the jury selection process and, and other instances. The court wrote, strikes exercised on the basis of sexual orientation continued this deplorable tradition of treating gays and lesbians as undeserving of participation in our nation's most cherished rites and rituals. They deprive individuals of the opportunity to participate in perfecting democracy and guarding our ideals of justice on account of a characteristic that has nothing to do with their fitness to serve. So, the other interesting thing about this case is in applying Batson in the sexual orientation context, the Ninth Circuit was one of the very first to interpret what the court, what Justice Kennedy, had done in the Windsor ruling, where, of course, the Supreme Court invalidated the DOMA statute uh, as violating the Fifth Amendment Equal Protection uh, Clause. And they did so by finding that the court had applied heightened scrutiny. Even though it didn't say it was doing so. Even though it didn't say it because was doing Justice so. Because Justice Kennedy doesn't like to use textbook doctrinal language. Right. So it's usually up to the appellate courts to kind of sort this stuff out. Right. And in this case, they certainly did it the right way. So the other kind of backdrop to this is California also has, the California Supreme Court has interpreted pre-Batson that folks are entitled to a fair and impartial uh, hearing based on some of these same things. And there's actually statutory law in California um, prohibiting bias and discrimination against sexual orientation and jury service, which is, it's one of like three states to have this protection. So now we're back to the California Court of Appeals here, which initially got this case wrong by holding well, that... Well, that's your opinion. 
<laughs> we may have Isn't a debate. Isn't this all here. my? Okay, we may have a debate. Here. I think we've actually had a little. We've tested this before, haven't yes. we? Okay, let's spar. So there's a mixed motive analysis that the court was applying here. So basically, under a mixed motive analysis, the court will allow somebody who's accused of unlawful discrimination to prevail if the discriminatory motivation was not a but-for cause of the decision. So if you know there was discrimination for one reason, but at the same time they would have been disclu- excluded for some other reason, the court will let it go ahead and stand. So that's what this court initially did. And then, of course, Lambda Legal and the Fair Courts Project, which I served as director for about six years, filed a letter with the court asking them to reconsider their original opinion. And that was pretty interesting because it's an amicus letter, which I've never seen before, Um, but it was a letter to the court um, asking them to, uh, you know, reconsider this ruling and hold that strikes in this instance violated both the California and U.S. constitutions. The court agreed with Lambda Legal that discriminatory practices in jury selection undermine trust in the jury system. And we have Judge Elena Duarte, um, who wrote, when a party exercises a peremptory challenge against a prospective juror for an invidious reason, the fact that the party may also have another more legitimate reason for the challenge doesn't eliminate the taint to the process. Um, so, again, really good ruling, um, holding that if there's bias infecting any part of the reason for excluding a juror, that it infects every part of the reason for excluding a juror. And so the question and your I point have... point of contention The, for the me? question I have <laughs> is, uh, you know, there may be many different reasons why a particular juror would be seen as inappropriate to serve by the prosecutor. Sure. Uh, and in this case... In the first go-around on this, uh, the issue was that the prosecutor did come up with other non-discriminatory reasons for not wanting these people on the jury, mm-hmm. for, for believing that they couldn't give a fair decision or they would be biased in some sense, not because of the sexual orientation issues. I think one of them had, had to do with a friendship with a prosecutor or something, uh-huh. or a defense lawyer. But if there is another reason that would justify keeping them off the jury, right. shouldn't they be kept off the jury? No. <laughs> I Even mean, though there's a good reason to look, keep them off? First of all, if this prosecutor had had any intelligence at all, and I hope he's not a listener to this podcast, or she, or, she. or they, um, you know, they would have kept their mouth shut, right? Like you could have raised those other issues for you. You can strike a juror for any reason at all, pretty much. Um, but you can't strike a juror for an invidious reason based on their characteristics because right. a black man would decide a case this way or a woman would decide a case that way. So the minute you state that reason in open court, it taints the process. Um, it sends, and I think, you know, in the Ninth Circuit's ruling, it kind of talks about democracy and, you know, the harm to the process and democracy if gay jurors think that they're being excluded in some meaningful way. So once this becomes part of the public record, there are other jurors in the room, potential jurors sitting in the pool, listening to this, thinking, oh, you can, it's permissible to strike someone because they're gay from, um, from a jury veneer. So there's a broader harm, not only to the individual who was 
discriminated against based on their sexual orientation, but it infects the entire system. Um, and so I think for that reason, it's, it's actually super important that if there's any discrimination at all in a case like this, um, that, that we really root it out like this court did. And if you've ruled wrong, you look back at it and fix it the next time up. Did I convince you, Art? No, <laughs> because I think you know there's also a public interest in uh, not having people on a jury who, for completely non-discriminatory reasons, shouldn't be on that jury, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's it's sort of unfair to the public in that sense to not let the prosecutor keep them off if there's a good reason why they shouldn't be serving. That so has he, nothing to do with their sexual. Absolutely. Abuse. So this doesn't mean that the guy is off the hook, right? It just means they've got to go back and find those particular folks who should be off the jury for the right reasons. So he should be retried and this time with a clean voir dire process. You got it. Seven. It looks like I convinced okay. you. Okay. <laughs> as long as this doesn't mean that the guy gets to walk because he shouldn't be shooting people. I mean, even if they're stiffing his boyfriend on the fee, he shouldn't be shooting it. All right. We can both agree on that point. Okay. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to do with, um, we're going to do our of note segment, which I always love. And we're back. What do you have in our of note segment art? I have to let folks know that you actually did tell me in advance, and this isn't really a surprise, but I can still gasp. Well, it's, 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 it's because uh, we have an extraordinary family court decision here in New extraordinary. York by one of our esteemed legal members, uh, Judge Javier Vargas in the New York family court, mm-hmm. uh, involving a transgender girl from Honduras who is currently being held by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the transgender section of a detention center in New Mexico. Okay. And you, you would wonder, what is this doing in a New York court? And right. Because it seems that this person's possessions mm-hmm. are, they're in the possession of an organization in New York that has them. Oh. And it seems that under the statute, someone who's outside the state can be subject to the jurisdiction of the court based on their having property in the state. Okay. Uh, and so uh, the organization that is representing her, uh, a, a nonprofit, the Catholic Migration Services of Brooklyn, uh, their attorney, Mr. Hector Rojas, uh, filed a petition to have a local person here in Brooklyn appointed as her guardian, okay. and then to ask the court to make the necessary factual findings for her to qualify under special immigrant juvenile status to uh, make an asylum claim. This is, a, it's an incredibly empathetic decision. I was so, uh, I mean, it's heartwarming to read it. And uh, at the end of his, his decision, uh, he says, uh, Monica's harrowing life cries for her to be permitted to remain, restart, and enjoy her new life on these shores of New York City. And then he quotes from the verses on the base of the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus, you know, give us your tired and yeah. your poor. Uh, That's and it's it's really it's beautiful to read. It's really amazing. Well, what's also amazing is just you know your depth of knowledge in these areas, and and what's another thing that's amazing is as we're looking at as I continue to pay attention to federal judges that are being appointed by the Trump administration, I go to a lot of judicial events here in New York State and in New York City, and I see the empathy, the range of diversity and perspectives that are represented on our state and city bench. 
And um, it's inspiring. It really is. Yeah. And uh, Judge Vargas is certainly among those that is both an esteemed member of this organization and also just a really fine jurist. Um, the other thing that I will note that's of, of note is we're a membership organization here at uh, Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and we had somebody join the other day, and she identified her reason for joining was because she listened to this podcast. So thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Uh, and this and future podcasts can be found online at iTunes and at legal.podbean.com. You can follow me at Ed Lesh or the Bar Association at LGBT Bar NY. Like us on Facebook. You can follow Art Leonard at ASLeonard1. So thanks again for joining us. We're actually going to be back not right away, right? You're probably beginning of July. Yeah, because we take a little bit of a vacation. Isn't that right? If anybody deserves a vacation, it's you, Art. Thank you so much. We'll be back soon.